This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Hey everybody, welcome to another Impact Books book report. This is long overdue in my opinion, but it is also one of the books that I am absolutely um, unsure of how I'm going to pull this together and do a book review. This book is massive. It is a book called Homo Deus by my boy Yuval Noah Harari. He also wrote um, Homo Sapiens, or just Sapiens, excuse me, which was also a fascinating book. I loved that. Um, this is sort of picking up where that left off and asking the question and positing some answers of where are we going as uh, the human species. And he paints a very interesting, I cannot tell you how intriguing I found this book, but also found that he was maybe a little bleak um, in the end. But this, this book really is utterly fascinating. I, for anybody that's just curious um, this is a book you will not regret reading. So um, I'm going to have to heavily re- rely on my notes on this one. It was a very, very dense book. And to avoid just sort of waffling around, um, I'm going to give it to you right from my notes. So he makes a very structured, logical argument. He lays out who we are. And that's really the first movement of the book is to understand humans, um, how our societies function, how we work, how our brains work. Um, and it goes something like this. Um, basically, that... The humans have two imperative drives that they're always going to have, that are always going to be pushing them forward. One is um, searching for true immortality, and two is happiness. And those are two things that are so innate to who we are as human beings that we're never going to give up the search for either of those. So even if they both lay truly outside the grasp of what human beings are capable of, which many people think immortality is one of those things. I obviously do not, uh, but that they are so hardwired into us to want them that we're always going to chase them. And there's huge business around it, so we're always um, gonna to want that. Now, remember, all of these arguments are gonna seem a little bit random at first, but they add up to some of his conclusions, so it's important to go through. Um, His next thing is on happiness. That's a very interesting take, and he says that evolution has programmed happiness to be fleeting. And I've talked a lot about the difference between eudaimonic happiness, which is framework happiness, it's becoming something, it's using technique or a skill in order to serve others, and that fills you with this sense of well-being. But one thing... um, that I never really get into is even eudaimonic happiness is something that 
comes and goes. Now, it may be more lasting than the momentary happiness of eating a bowl of ice cream, but he makes a very compelling argument that every kind of happiness is ultimately fleeting. And the example that he gives is he said, imagine that you ate one meal and you had an eternal feeling of bliss and you never you know, were bothered to go eat again and so you would eventually starve to death, you wouldn't pass on your genes. Or likewise, imagine if you had one orgasm and it left you with an eternal feeling of bliss, uh, you would never seek to have another orgasm, which means that you wouldn't be spreading your genes. And so this that's why Every one of our base level human drivers is by its very nature fleeting. And that was uh, just a very succinct way of something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and I found that really, really interesting. And that fleeting nature, again, is gonna add up to where we're going as a species to understand these drivers for immortality, for happiness, that all of these pleasurable things, all of these things that drive our behavior, all of them are, are designed to be fleeting, to be ephemeral, to be something that we, we have to keep going back for um, really informs sort of where he believes that we're headed. All right, emotions are biochemical algorithms. The notion of algorithms are really important to him, um, and we'll get into um, some of the, the what he calls new religions and dataism being one of the new religions that really rides on algorithms. So this notion of him explaining humans even as being algorithmically driven is pretty interesting. Um, and he says that algorithms are one of the most fundamental building blocks of life, period. And if we're going to understand how human works, we really do have to understand algorithms. And emotions are essentially the most efficient way for the algorithms to communicate back with us. And so um, he talks about the subconscious being where we can process data in a way that is faster and vaster. So the conscious mind is, um, as Jamie Wheel explains it, sort of the um, the headlines. It's your subconscious is delivering up sort of after the fact as it's you know, assessing its surroundings and all of that, it's feeding up these headlines and that's what you experience in your conscious mind. But really below the surface are all these algorithms, vast algorithms that are running, that are able to process and parse and assimilate an insane amount of data. Now, it would be way too slow of a process for us to have a sort of rational understanding of what we're experiencing. So what he's saying is the algorithms speak to us in emotions. So the emotions that we experience um, are actually just algorithmically driven and it's the subconscious way of speaking to the conscious mind so that we will act very, very rapidly. And the example that he gives in the book is a baboon that's going after a bushel of bananas that are between it and a tiger. And will it be able to get to the bushel of bananas and escape faster than the tiger will be able to close distance? And it has to process a lot of data, how fast it is, how fast the tiger is, the distance it is from the bananas, the distance the tiger is from the bananas. Um, is the tiger, does it seem hungry or does it seem disinterested? All of those things are gonna factor in into this baboon's decision, but it's not thinking about that all on a conscious level. It sees the tiger, sees the bananas, and it has a gut feeling to either go for it or turn and run in the opposite direction. And that feeling of unease or confidence is the algorithms. That's them speaking up to you in emotions. Uh, he does a really good job of explaining that, and I found that utterly interesting, and it made um, all of my emotions that much more relevant when it makes it feel like it's this conversation that I'm having with my subconscious um, processes. And by the way, that's something that's really useful in life is to, when you get that feeling, and this is something I've talked about before in terms of how do you become more introspective? How do you become more self-aware? 
is to realize like when you feel something weird in your gut, something feels off, there is an algorithm running and it is trying to tell you something. Once you understand that none of those sensations are random or haphazard and they are very much the result of um, your unique algorithms which have to do not only with your genetics but your upbringing and everything that's going on in your life, that it is uh, trying to tell you something. And so whether or not you listen to that is going to be determined by what your goals are. And so anyway, we could go off on a whole tangent on that. We won't, but that that's the way um, that the subconscious is speaking to you. All right. Uh, whatever the dominant form of mythology is in human society is really going to shape the very fabric of that society. And as he started getting into this, um, I found this incredibly interesting. And he said that when cultures um, were more animist, so we viewed ourselves as being sort of at one, we were one piece of the cosmos, we were one piece of the planet, and so um, we didn't necessarily view ourselves as any better than um, other animals. So if we were walking through the forest and we came across a snake or um, a tiger or whatever, um, animist societies may actually speak to that animal and say something like, hey, we're both here looking for food. I won't mess with you if you don't mess with me. And there's a real sense of connection. But as we move out of an animist society and we go into a society whose dominant form of mythology is theist, then everything changes. And in theist religions, um, you're living in a world where uh, basically the plants and animals are um, under human dominion and God has granted us uh, special status as human beings. And basically he says that this shift has massive implications in terms of how we treat animals in the environment, which we can certainly see. Um, and it's really the shift that has allowed us to slash and burn entire rainforests and do uh, farming, animal farming, the way that we do now, uh, which really wouldn't be possible if we didn't have a dominant form of mythology that gave us dominion over all of those things. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and I was very curious sort of where he was going with this and building on it, uh, but ultimately where he's going to take you is to the point of saying, okay, we have a new religion now, and that new religion now is humanism, and that has implications, but does he think we're going to make the crossover into our sort of next generation of being a human um, while we're still human uh, humanists? Or do we transition to what he calls dataism? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, I'll just read you my direct note on this next point that he makes. Dear God, this is fascinating. Uh, the thing about mythology and religion that allows humans to cooperate in very large groups is that they have, um, they're able to believe that what their fellow humans are doing is uh, a natural lot or a commandment from God. Now, where this gets really interesting, he goes into um, the Crusades, he goes into the pharaohs in Egypt, and how the mythology played into the way that everybody was treating each other. And um, he talks about the Crusades being sort of this fascinating moment where you had two exact um, mirrored belief systems, but they were opposing. But because they were mirrored, we were able to get into this huge clash between Christianity and Islam, but it was only because you had two competing uh, religions that both believed in a single God, both believed that they were meant to fight and die for the Holy Land, that they had to recapture that. If either of them had believed even just a slight different variation other than my God is the one true God, my God is the one true God, and it's different than yours, uh, the Holy Land is mine, the Holy Land is mine, uh, we have to kill the infidels, we have to kill the infidels, right? So it literally, it all lines up, which is why there was the just catastrophic collision that there was, but if one of the groups had dominant mythology that said, um, you know, 
like take one that's animist, right? That we're all a part of this and this land isn't any more mine than it is yours. When you came to take it over, more likely than anything, I would back off and I would find other pastures to um, deal with. And there'd be no sense of like holy ownership and a need to fight for that land. And I just like the way he looked at it through the lens. And in fact, this is one of the things that he says is imagine you look back at the Crusades and you think, oh my gosh, that's so ridiculous. Or you look back at the way the pyramids were built using slave labor and you think, oh my gosh, that's so ridiculous. And yet, what are the beliefs that we believe now that 100 years or 200 years from now, people will look at and say, that's ridiculous. So every society looks back at even, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and it all seems patently ridiculous. But we are living through one of those moments right now and thinking about our own period and all the beliefs that we have, and we're about to get that, um, get into that with humanism because it made me realize I'm a humanist, like, and I had no idea that there was even a name for it, um, that ultimately, almost certainly, future generations are going to look back on it like it's just sort of obviously ridiculous. Um, and then um, he goes into defining that there are three types of reality, one subjective, two objective, and three intersubjective. Um, the one that's really interesting here is intersubjective, and money is the best example. So something that's an intersubjective truth is something that is only true because we all agree that it's true. So money is really just paper or geez, in today's modern era, it's like uh, zeros and ones in a computer or somewhere. Um, so that is only valuable as long as we all agree that it's valuable. And if we all stopped agreeing that it was valuable, it would immediately cease to be valuable. So take Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, people started saying, hey, it's valuable, it's worth something. And because that, because they were willing to trade it for goods and services, then it actually became valuable. Um, so that's really interesting. And this, the notion of, remember, these are all bricks that he's building to lead up to, like, what's that next movement? So intersubjectivity becomes critically important as you begin to ask the question, which he basically is positing, that we're ultimately going to be taking over um, the programming of the human being that will basically invade our own DNA, that we will make modifications, um, that it will be um, sort of, he doesn't quite say this, but basically the concept is it'll be as easily editable as, um, you know, text on a computer now. So we eventually get to the point where we can go in, edit our DNA. We're going to have to then make decisions about in what direction we edit it. And those decisions are going to be based entirely on the intersubjective things that we value. Even though they're not objectively valuable, um, we're going to shape the next generation of humanity in directions based on that intersubjective truth. So what are intersubjective truths? Where will we put our emphasis? What are we going to evolve ourselves into? It's pretty crazy. Um, he notes that we're the only animal that can imagine things that we have not seen. So other animals in the animal kingdom use their forms of communication to describe the world as they see it. But humans are the only ones that can describe things like money, companies, governments, all right, and this is where it gets really interesting. Um, in trying to really explain, explain the driver shaping the human behavior of large groups of people, he says that um, you can't just look at the neurons and firing patterns in the brain. You have to understand uh, the intersubjective reality that I was talking about of cultures. And he said, take North and South Korea, for instance. They aren't so different um, from a genetic or environmental standpoint, um, and yet they have massive differences. But their differences are because they have dramatically different intersubjective fictions and that they believe um, 
They have very different intersubjective fictions that they believe in and adhere to. Uh, the following is a direct quote from the book, by the way. I just thought this was so interesting. I took the time to write all of this down verbatim. Um, maybe this is a quote. Maybe someday breakthroughs in neurobiology will enable us to explain communism and the Crusades in strictly biochemical terms, yet we are very far from that point. During the 21st century, the border between history and biology you guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions, and I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing, and a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com/impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news 
news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. ...is likely to blur, not because we will discover biological explanations for historical events, but rather because ideological fictions will rewrite DNA strands. So the quote continues, but I'm just going to interject here and say, um, that's what I was talking about, that we're going to value certain things. We're going to begin to manipulate our DNA code um, and make new humans in our own liking and the things that we believe should be good, but like how tall should they be? How smart should they be? Should they be empathetic? Should they be less empathetic? Like what does all that look like? More emotional, less emotional? Should they be like Spock and pure rationality? Like we're going to make those decisions and they are very much decisions based on inner subjective truth, um, which that this whole part like I just found insanely interesting. Political and economic interest will redesign the climate and the geography of mountains and rivers will give way to cyberspace as human fictions are translated into genetic and electronic codes. The intersubjective reality will swallow up the objective reality and biology will merge with history. In the 21st century, fiction might thereby become the most potent force on Earth, surpassing even wayward asteroids and natural selection. Hence, if we want to understand our future, cracking genomes and crunching numbers is hardly enough. We must also decipher the fictions that give meaning to our world. All right, so when he talks about fiction there, he's talking about those intersubjective fictions that we're all telling ourselves, the religions that we believe in, the value systems that we have that we have created that don't necessarily have a foot in objective reality. And so what we choose to value as we begin to shape um, DNA, as we begin to, I mean, think about... CRISPR-Cas9 and our ability to go in and literally edit our um, genome. I mean, it's it's really fascinating to think where this is going to go. Um, I take a very optimistic approach. I think that we will um, lean on the better angels of our nature, and I think that good things will come out of this. Um, he paints maybe a little more objectively balanced uh, notion, but I think he leans a little um, to the gloomy side, but nonetheless, uh, just incredibly interesting. Um, and he's saying, uh, fiction isn't bad. In fact, this is a quote. Fiction isn't bad. It's vital without commonly accepted stories about things like money, states, or corporations. Um, no complex human society can function. We can't play football unless everyone believes in the same made-up rules. And we can't enjoy the benefits of the markets and courts without similar make-believe stories. But the stories are just tools. They should not become our goals or our yardsticks. When we forget that they are mere fiction, we lose touch with reality, end quote. Um, this is where he gets into the new religions. So humanism is a new religion. Humanism sees life as a process of gradual interchange leading from ignorance to enlightenment by means of experiences. The highest aim of the humanist life is to fully develop your knowledge through a large variety of intellectual, emotional, and physical experiences. That's end quote. Um, that's when I realized I'm a humanist. Uh, through 
literally no intention. And that was what I found so fascinating is that it really is like a part of a bigger movement and it's something that is present in society and that we're just moving that way now. Um, you know, when you look at the society sort of at a macro level, like when that started happening and all that, I have no idea, but it was utterly fascinating to hear somebody I'd never met reflect back my belief system, which felt so unique to me um, to articulate it so well. I thought that was really fascinating. So um, that made me really pause when the same guy said, and let me tell you what religion is coming. And uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, this is a lead into that. So this is a quote. The main products of the 21st century will be bodies, brains, and minds. And the gap between those who know how to engineer bodies, brains, and those who do not will be far bigger than the gap between Dickens, Britain, and the Mahdi's Sudan. Indeed, it will be bigger than the gap between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. Now, Knowing him, that's uh, one of his sort of um, almost warnings, seeing as how Homo sapiens eradicated the Neanderthals. Um, so I think there's something lurking in the margins on that one. Uh, and then he says that dataism is really the only new quasi-religion that is poised to take over from humanism. And dataism basically states that everything that humans and machines do is um, a data processing algorithm. And that really, according to dataism, it's all about how the data is processed, the efficiency therein. So according to dataism, communism, for instance, and capitalism aren't competing ideological systems. Instead, they are both variations of data processing. And capitalism, which uses distributed processing, and communism uses centralized data processing. Um, capitalism has proven itself to be a much more efficient form of data processing. Uh, anyone is able to join the system, at least in theory. And this is why... Um, communism fell because just to like get bread to people is brutally difficult when every decision is centralized. So um, he posits that capitalism won because it's just a more efficient way of processing the data. The markets determine the prices, not some governmental agency. The markets determine um, who makes how much of what, not the governmental agency. So it's all done locally. Um, and the, yeah, it's constantly fluctuating and the markets are making decisions in real time. Um, and he says, capitalism has proven itself to be a much more efficient form of data processing. Um, and that one of, that's one of the reasons that capitalists prefer lower taxes, because as you raise taxes, the wealth pools in one area, the government and the decisions of things, uh, become more and more centralized with the government. And that's why capitalism, which wants to maintain this sort of fierce distributed um, data processing would push back against that. Um, okay, one thing that he prognosticates is that as the data processing algorithms become more and more important and we all feed everything we do into the data system and he does, he talks a lot about like, you know, what happens when um, all of your emails are being read by AI that follows you, it's unique to you, you have it for, you know, decades and it reads every email, it listens to every phone conversation, it listens to all the music that you listen to, it watches everything that you buy, uh, the types of people that you date, it's, you know, um, reading your heart rate and subjective and objective measures of happiness and all of that. So that to the point where instead of you going through Tinder and saying, oh, I want to see this person, it goes, actually, no, remember that they were fun uh, when you dated somebody just like that before. They were fun for the first month and then you really began to burn out on them and then ultimately the breakup was brutal and you went into a period of depression for six months after that. So I advise, even though this guy looks a little more boring, you should actually go out with him. 
them and that you had a relationship like that before and it actually brought you more happiness and you had actually, uh, you know, for a year after uh, lamented the breakup. And so this is, you know, what we suggest based on all the like thousands of data points that that AI would have. And as he was describing it, and I've done a significantly worse job, as he was describing it in the book, I thought, I want that. I want that AI in my life. Like I want it to read my emails because I'm certainly not going to. I want it to listen to my phone calls. I want it to be, you know, reading the data, being kicked off by my Fitbit and all that. It sounded amazing. And I knew he kind of meant it as a warning, but it sounded phenomenal to me. Um, He goes out of his way to note that we can't really predict the future, uh, but his final words are a little bleak. uh, And he essentially says that in the face of dataism, humanism loses its importance. Humans become one more piece of data and we're only as important as the data we kick off. And that that is... Um, ultimately going to make us, and this is almost a direct quote, turn, um, disappear in a stream like a lump of dirt floating downstream. And um, I thought, wow, I actually get what he's saying uh, because you do, if dataism were to sort of swallow the world, then AI would be way more important than humans because it can uh, process so much more data than we can so much more rapidly. Uh, It would kick off a lot more data. So like, eh, does one human life really matter that much from a data processing standpoint? Not really. Um, So that was not the most uplifting of endings, but he did, he goes out of his way to say, hey, look, these are just like guesses. You never really know uh, where this is all gonna end up. So regardless of a mildly bleak like um, sort of take on it, I cannot stress enough, this book will, it is fascinating and it will make you look at yourself, life, culture, where we're going all in an amazing new light. I found this utterly fascinating. This was one of those books I couldn't shut up about. I was talking to everybody that walked by me about this book. Uh, it was, yeah, just amazing. It gets my highest recommendation. Um, and I really believe that you should read things that you disagree with. I think that's important. So if any of the ideas I said in here, like you think, oh man, that doesn't really resonate with me, man, that might be more reason to read it. All right, guys, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. Uh, this isn't a weekly show. Most of them are. But when I read something that just seems really important to um, cover, we will cover. And this one was awesome. I loved it. And I think you will too. So subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.